Father, thank you for every precious person that's made their way into this place on this Lord's Day. What a beautiful day it is. What a great expression of something that you made, which is corporate worship. You want us to fellowship together. It's such a unique uh, facet of the Christian experience to join with God's people and to see the gifts in operation, the various gifts that make a Sunday morning happen. We're so grateful for every uh, servant that faithfully serves in the different areas of ministry. And we're grateful for the way you are moving in this fellowship, Lord. We give you all the glory. And as we look at this incredible account of the miracle at the Red Sea, how you parted the sea by your mighty power, how you were honored through what occurred, we pray that you would be honored through what happens today. This story is for us today. And I pray that you would increase our faith, give us ears to hear what you would say to your people in this hour. And I pray that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In Philip Ryken's commentary on the book of Exodus, he shares a story by Donald Bridge. And he tells of a liberal minister who was preaching in an old Bible-believing African-American church. At a certain point in his sermon, the minister referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. A parishioner responded, Praise the Lord, taking all the children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. However, the minister did not believe in miracles. So he said rather condescendingly, it was not a miracle. They were in a marshland, the tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. Praise the Lord, the man shouted again, drowning all the Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. Sometimes we need the congregants to correct the preacher. You want to talk back to me today? It'll be all right. Hopefully there'll be no need for correction. But... Uh, as we look at this account, I want to remind you of, of a beautiful promise that we saw last time we were together. It's in verse 13, starting there. Moses responds to the fear of the people. The Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, has them trapped against the sea and the mountains. I'm going to ask, uh, we throw the map up just for a second so you guys can get an idea of the geography here. So there's some debate about the actual location of the Red Sea crossing. You'll notice in the upper left part of the map, that's Egypt proper. The logical way that we looked at it a previous message is to take the way of the Philistines, but they weren't ready for war. That would be up against the Mediterranean Sea that we know of today. Future Israel is up on the right. Sorry for the resolution, but I think you can hopefully see it. And from the Red Sea proper, which is the lower border of Egypt, two gulfs, two arms go up, they would also be known as the Red Sea at this time. And so there's some recent um, scholarship that makes an argument that the Red Sea crossing occurred across the Gulf of Aqaba, which would be that right arm, and they crossed there and moved into the area of Sinai, which would be in the area of Arabia. That's just one view. There's a debate. In the, in the end, it doesn't really matter, but I will say that some of you who have been Christians for a while have seen some uh, artifacts that they claim they've pulled from the Sea of Aqaba, namely chariot wheels and full, there's pictures on the internet of full chariots. I will tell you this, uh, and there, there's a gentleman behind uh, some of that archaeology that's, um, I will just say this, he's a bit of a controversial figure, and the, the artifacts are being debated in archaeological circles. 
We don't need the artifacts to prove the story is true. I will say to you that archaeology is a nice buttress to our Christian faith, and it seems that every time the, they turn the shovel and find a discovery, it does affirm the scriptural uh, content. So that's good, but we don't need it to prove the Red Sea crossing. I just wanted you to get a feel for the geography so you can see what's going on. But if, if this is correct, basically this is the way it lays out. The children of Israel came through a single opening. They were, they were at a beach, just so you could picture any normal beach, and that's where they were. But on the other side were mountains, and there was only one way in and one way out. And the way in and out had now been occupied by the Egyptian army. Thousands of chariots and horsemen and an intimidating army. And there you are. You've got no way to go. Nowhere to go. And so Moses is the leader of this group along with his brother Aaron. And Moses says to the people, reading from the NIV, a beautiful three-point promise. I want to make sure you've got it. He says, don't be afraid. Verse 13, stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. Now, see in your Bible, some of your uh, versions say the salvation of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word or name Yeshua. And that's the name Jesus. So whenever you see deliverance or salvation in the Old Testament, it's going to be the Hebrew word Yeshua, the name Jesus. And when Jesus got his name, and that was articulated by the angel to Joseph, what he would be named, it means his name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So each time they said, Jesus, dinner time, they were saying, my salvation, come. That's who he is. He is our salvation. And you will experience that today, end of 13. The Egyptians you see that look so intimidating today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only the third plank of the promise to be still. So here's three things. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be still. We all know Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. And it goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, Bible students, one thing that I want to point out to you is that when Moses spoke that beautiful promise, he spoke it still with the Egyptian army there and still with the sea unparted. He spoke it without the solution having been realized. And you and I need to be able to speak words of faith and life when we don't always see the clear answer right in front of us. You all know how God works. He seems to do things at the last minute in his own time and in his own way. So it's unmistakable who gets the glory. Amen? And so we need to be able to stand upon these promises even when the answer is not immediately in front of us. Moses spoke these words of trust when it was not clearly seen what was going to happen. I don't even know if Moses knew what God was going to do at this point. And so we can rest not because of the absence of danger, says one writer, but because of a God in whom we can trust. We stand upon his promises. And again, keep in mind that Moses did not know what was going to occur. Another writer says, despair will cast you down, keeping you from standing. Fear will tell you to retreat. Impatience will tell you to do something now. Presumption will tell you to jump into the Red Sea before it's parted. Yet, as God told Israel, he often tells us simply, stand still, 
hold your peace, I will reveal my plan. And God is going to tell the children of Israel in the following verse, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Here's the title. Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Go forward. Now the question I would have standing at the Red Sea is where? (laughs) Where exactly would you have us to go? And I think that God was telling them to get ready to break camp. There was perhaps over a million people here, maybe as many as two million. They had to round up animals. They had to pack their things. God was telling them, get ready. I'm about to do something amazing, and I want you ready when I do it. And that is faith. For we walk by faith and not by sight. It is easy to believe once the waters are parted. It's another thing to stand upon the promises when you haven't seen the answer yet. And in the gospel, I I will tell you guys that this is, this particular text or uh, account is a picture of the gospel. This is probably the greatest deliverance story ever told next to the gospel itself. And I was thinking about what we've seen so far. So we saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentil, and we saw how God passed over the people, and he led them out. Now they've come to the edge of the Red Sea. Could it be that we have the cross in the Passover and kind of the picture of the resurrection as they go through the Red Sea? Someone asked me at the beginning of, uh, or at the end of first service, how long do you think it took them to cross? We don't know for sure. It would be interesting if it took three days. Obviously, it was a large amount of people and a lot of water. It doesn't seem that that's the case. It seems like, you know, maybe it was just a, a single day or evening, but that's up for debate. But here's the point. This is a picture of the gospel. The Lord is, it takes us, look, life is fragile, guys. We're, we're up against it, aren't we? Our backs are up against the wall in many respects. If you're not a Christian today, I don't know what non-Christian people do in the face of all this stuff, but I understand what it means to be a non-Christian. I understand what it means to try to do life without God. But our backs are up against the wall. We are mortal There is a fragility to life. It is very unpredictable. One of the members of the worship team standing up here leading worship, Nick, who was right over to my right today, his dad died last night. Now, he has, he he said there's no place else he wanted to be than right here because he has an eternal perspective. And by God's grace, God allowed his dad to open his heart to the gospel just in the last year or so. Praise the Lord. But... This life is tough, man. There's a lot of unpredictable things. There's a lot of big enemies out there, intimidating situations. And we can often feel like there's no way out. What is the way of escape? And the Bible tells us, how, will she, how shall we escape, Hebrews 2, 3, if we neglect so great a salvation? The Lord wants us to find the way of escape. I'm gonna show you something in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Hold your place in Exodus, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to show you how applicable this is. This is the most direct commentary on the Red Sea crossing in the New Testament, written to a uh, church in Corinth, which was filled with Gentile people and Jewish people. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Paul has just been preaching about running the race well. Some of you have been watching the Olympics. You know that you know, we want to run in such a way that we can win. I was watching a race the other night, and 
there was a false start. The guy was in the starting blocks and he left before the gun. And, you know, that uh, official walks up to you and basically has the card and you walk off the track and you're disqualified from the race. And I'm thinking, bummer, <laughs> you train for years and years for this single moment of life and you get disqualified because of a false start. Well, that's what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I don't want you to be disqualified, run in such a way that you may win. Uh, make your body your slave. Don't be enslaved to it. And then he says in 10.1, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, church, that our fathers, that's the Jewish fathers, were all under the cloud. That's the glory cloud. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses. Probably the idea of identifying Moses as their leader, which we'll see at the end of this message. In the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, that's manna. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. We'd like to say that after this Red Sea crossing, they all did marvelous, but they really didn't. Now, these things happened as examples noted for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Now, there's a list of things they did in the following verses. You can read those later. But verse 11 kind of summarizes what we're to learn. It says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, New Testament church, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. You need to know that. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. This is what happens at the Red Sea. They escape through an impossible situation, a powerful army, an impassable sea, that you may be able to endure it. And then he says, therefore, my beloved Flee from idolatry. God provides a way of escape. And the greatest temptation that we face in our time is to give up. To give up on our faith. It would be easy in this day for us to retreat. We're hearing talk of a variant. We're hearing talk of possible shutdowns and lockdowns again. And many of us are saying, if not all of us, oh no, here we go again. And there's all this stuff happening. This is no time to retreat, brethren. This is a time to go forward. And we, as a church, are going forward. Amen? Amen. Amen. We've had a round to practice, so we should be better at this whole thing now, right? <laughs> and so I want to ask you a question as you turn back to Exodus. How many of you have come to Living Truth during the COVID season and you arrived here during the last year, year and a half? Just raise up your hand. Everybody just look around for a second. Now, if you were to ask me, Pastor Michael, it's 2020. We were doing all those play on words. 2020 vision. We're going to have a 2020 vision. It's a chance. Sounded great. Could you imagine if you interviewed a pastor and they said something like this? Our church growth strategy for 2020 will be this. There will be a worldwide pandemic. 
We will keep our doors open. We'll open with a thousand other churches in California and take a stand. And people will flock to living truth simply because the doors are open. That's our strategy for 2020. I will say, what? Come on, man. But God does work in mysterious ways. And we should praise him for his faithfulness because he is good. And we learn in the story of Gideon when he pairs down the army to 300, God does what he does for his glory so that there's no mistaking that it is, it is his power. God delivers his people from drowning and paralyzing fear, says one writer. And I would submit to you, brethren, that we are about to read an account that is one of the ultimate faith lessons in our Bibles. The Lord guides, he protects, and he delivers his people. Fear will paralyze you from moving forward, but it is time to go forward. And that is our message today. This miracle is attested all throughout Scripture. Uh, just a couple of quick snapshots. In Joshua 2.10, if you're taking notes, Rahab the harlot says to the spies, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Joshua 2.10, part A of the verse. Psalm 106, verse 7 says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, you saved them for the sake of your name that you might make your power known. Psalm 106, 7 and 8. It says, You rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up and led them through the deeps and through the wilderness. And then Psalm 106, 19 through 22 says, Israel made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea, Psalm 106, 19 through 22. I'll be giving you other verses as we go through, but I want you to see that there are many parallel passages that celebrate this miracle and say that it occurred and it happened just as the Bible said. What can we learn from it? That's where we're going. And so the Lord says to Moses, Exodus 14, 15, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. There's our title. If you have an NIV, it says to move on. If you have a New Living Translation, it says tell the people to get moving. Time to get moving. Amen? Yeah. Now, prayer is important, but prayer in this instance, and such a great preacher as C.H. Spurgeon said, he celebrates prayer. It's the happy, holy uh, privilege of God's people. But there's a time, please hear this well, when prayer takes a second place to moving. How do I know that? God just said that. Stop crying out and move. And those of you who have been around the church for a while know that praying about things can be a convenient way to slip out of things. So you, something gets proposed to you, a potential ministry, a place that you can serve or whatever it may be. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about it, but some of you have been praying about it since 1978. <laughs> well, I'm praying about it. You're praying about it. Well, there's a time to pray and there's a time to move. And I'm not saying the two are mutually exclusive because they're not. We should pray and move. We should do like Nehemiah. He saw the broken walls in Jerusalem and he prayed, but he also had an activated faith. He was getting materials and asking the king's permission. And there is a time, obviously, to wait on the Lord, but there's also a time to move. Isn't it your time to move? 
Well, what, what, what makes us not want to move forward? Usually fear. And, you know, I've said at many wedding ceremonies, this is one practical application, that sometimes it's unforgiveness that keeps us stuck. Forgiveness will move you forward. Unforgiveness will keep you stuck. The people were so busy blaming Moses. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the wilderness to die? Right? Whining and complaining. They had already seen 10 mighty miracles. They had, they had the glory cloud right there leading them. What is wrong with these people? But we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. What's wrong with us? Why do we have such little faith often? And so, obviously, we enjoy and we should be praying about everything, but there is a time to move forward. Let me ask you, are you stuck? What's keeping you stuck at the other side of the sea? Are you going to move forward or stay stuck? And so, you say, well, here's the people between, if this location's right, between the mountains and the sea and this Egyptian army, they got no way out. Well, it's true. With men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus said in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, Mark 14, 36. And so God directs now the next interaction to Moses. He says, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. This is the staff that we saw turning the Nile into blood. God did it, but he used the staff. This is the staff that was used for the plague of frogs. And now Moses is told, stretch out your hands, stretch out the staff, that shepherd's staff, and divide the waters. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Here's the plan. Moses, I want you to pray and get in an attitude of worship and I'll do the rest. Do you know that that's usually all God wants from us? He wants our prayer. He wants our worship. And sometimes people will mock that. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Could it be that simple? You mean you, all you really want from us, Lord, is prayer and repentance? It's true. There's a king in the Old Testament. This is the book of Isaiah. And uh, I think it's Hezekiah. And Shennacherib, uh, the leader of the Assyrian uh, hordes that are just dominating the world, are coming upon uh, Israel. And he goes and prays. And there's a threatening letter. And he lays it before the Lord. And Isaiah the prophet comes to the king of Judah. And he says this. He says, because you prayed, the Lord is going to deliver you. And it turns out, as you read the rest of the story that uh, the king Shennacherib hears something and he goes back home and he's in a pagan uh, temple worshiping his false god and he gets murdered, he gets killed. God takes care of it, but he honors the king of Judah simply for crying out to him. Would to God that at the tops of churches in America and political institutions, we would be praying we would be crying out to God for wisdom and for answers and for solutions rather than trying to do it ourselves. There's an old spiritual, it goes this way. Moses stood on the Red Sea shore, smoting on the water with a two by four. <laughs> and there's been some wonderful depictions of this. 
Uh, Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, shows the parting of the Red Sea. And if you watched it decades ago, it looked fantastic. Wasn't there even a theme park that did it? Universal Studios showed it. And now you watch the movie and you're like, eh, not so great. You know, a little bit cheesy, the, the, the cloud and stuff. But if, how many of you have seen the Prince of Egypt movie? So now the Prince of Egypt movie, you know, it's Moses and he's young and he takes the staff and boom and bam, everything goes and there's whales lit up in the walls of water and the walls of water are, you know, 570 stories tall and, and that's, that's Hollywood. That might be the Lord calling right now. <laughs> but the Lord... <laughs> Your servants are listening, Lord. Are you saying, okay, anyway. (laughs) Can you imagine having the power to put your hands over the ocean and have it part? Wouldn't that be cool just to have that for a day? If you were a surfer, wouldn't that be cool? The swell's kind of low. All right, boys, what are we going to do? No, just hold on a minute. (laughs) Six, eight-foot swells. If you had the power... For the day where you could bring a wave on one of your neighbors, would you guys do that? Would you be tempted to, that neighbor, you know, (laughs) loud music last night. No, don't do that. That's just a joke. But the Lord does amazing things. And all he asked Moses to do is simply take a posture of faith. Just stretch out your hands. And sometimes that's the most difficult thing for all of us to do. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts 17 of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, after Israel, and I will be honored through Pharaoh. I will be glorified even in judgment and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And some of you may say, what Egyptians will know if he... If the whole Red Sea collapses back on them, who's going to know? Who's going to be left? Well, people in Egypt will be left, and it will be spoken in the caravans, and other peoples will hear how God made a name for himself, as Nehemiah puts it in Nehemiah 9, through what he did. But here's the other thing. People come to know that the God of the Bible is God even when they die. In fact, That may be the time that it's most solidified. Would you not agree? Because your soul goes on living. And a lot of people have come to the realization that the God of the Bible is God after their own personal death. So you're going to live on in one one of two places. And so we need to trust the Lord now. Walter Martin one time said that God, the God of the Bible, presides over the funerals of all the skeptics and atheists of all the world of all time because man is going to die. And we need to trust the Lord. And so God was not finished, finishing uh, answering Pharaoh's question, says one writer, when he asked, who is the Lord, Exodus 5.2, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And God's been spending several chapters letting Pharaoh know who exactly he is. And so the angel of God, 19, who had been going before the camp of Israel, this is that glory cloud associated with the Lord himself, 
moved and went behind them, that is behind the people of Israel, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. I think these are one and the same. And notice where it says the angel of God, that's the messenger of God. Many people believe that that's the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, God the Son, moving from in front of the Israel, guiding, guiding them in front of Israel like a shepherd and moving behind them to create a blockade between the people of Israel and the Egyptian army. And we've seen this depicted in movies. And this is what the Lord does for us. I don't know how many times without us realizing it, the Lord has saved us from danger. And there are several scriptures that I want to share with you that have this idea. Just write them down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 52, 12 says, The Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Isaiah 58, 8 says, Then your light will break out like the dawn when you live the right way, and your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. That's Isaiah 58, 8 and 9. And then finally, Isaiah 63, 8 and 9 says, Surely they are my people, Israel, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, Isaiah 63, 8 and 9, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Later in Exodus we will learn that God says, I uh, bore my people on eagles' wings. That's how much I love them. And here's a picture of our great mediator, the great go-between between man and God. He stands and he blocks the enemy. What's our enemy today? It's sin. It's being enslaved to sin. It's death. It's the uh, devil. It's the world system. It's all this stuff coming at us. And he blocks it for his people. He becomes the barrier. He becomes the protection. He's going to take care of you. He will be your rear guard. He will lead you and guide you to you know, uh, streams of living water and still waters and green pastures. That's what the Lord promises. And it, the glory cloud, or the Lord himself, came between the camp of Egypt 20 and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus one did not come near the other all night. So we have an interim period now of all night. NIV, I think, gives us a little bit more clarity. The glory cloud came between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night. The cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. This is the beauty of this scene, and it's reminiscent of the ninth plague. Remember when there were three days of darkness in Egypt? But in Goshen, there was light for the people of God. Well, now, if you're in the Egyptian army's camp, thousands of, of soldiers, it's dark for you. On the other side, light to God's people. And this is the distinction that God makes. His people are light in him. You were formerly darkness. Now you are what? Light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. But here's a picture of the world, the world without God in the judgment of darkness. 
the people of God in basking in the light of his love and goodness and protection. That's what we have. That's why we need to cross over from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That's what Paul was told to do when he preached by Jesus. That, that was his commission. Tell the people how to get saved, how to come out of darkness and come into the light. I wonder how many Egyptian soldiers were looking over into the camp of Israel thinking, you know, it'd be nice to be in the light. But there was the d- distinction between the people of God and the people of the world, if you will. The Egyptians, says Riken, were chomping at the bit, ready to attack, but all night long God kept them in the dark. Meanwhile, on the other side of the divine blockade, the children of God were basking in the light. Our great go-between, Christ Jesus, protecting us from the big enemies of life, sin and death, Satan, all of the dark powers that we face. He will deliver us. He has delivered us. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and something else was happening. The Lord swept the sea back. It wasn't Moses. The Lord did it by a strong east wind. He used the wind because the wind is at his beck and call. And he turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. Notice, it was during the night. It was the strong east wind all night. So this wasn't the snap of a finger uh, parting of the sea. The wind blew and blew and blew, and finally it opened up the way. And part of the miracle was the dry ground that they could pass over. Because you would imagine it would have been you know, mushy and it would have been difficult to move anything there, animals and, and the like. But the Lord, part of the miracle was he dried out the ground and the wind blew and he held back the Egyptian army. He's opening up the way for his people and holding back the enemy with his presence. Isn't he good? And he can do it all at the same time because we serve a mighty God, praise the Lord, who's a mighty miracle-working God. And he blocks the enemy and he opens up the way for his people. And this is our story, brethren. This is the way of salvation. This is a picture of the gospel. Isaiah says, Was it not you who dried up the sea? Isaiah 51.10, The waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea the pathway for the redeemed to cross over. Remember when the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is finally getting some rest, long overdue rest, and a storm comes and the disciples begin to freak out. And should we wake him up? I don't know. Should we wake him up? And they wake him up. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And the Lord says to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And before that, it said he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, quiet. (laughs) Don't you love it? Be still. Hush. This is the power that Jesus manifested over uh, creation and so forth. And then they said of Jesus, you can write down Mark 4, 39 through 41. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'll tell you who he is. He's God. And we beheld his glory, John says. And so the sons of Israel, 22, went through the midst of the sea. That word for sea is yam, if you're interested, Y-A-M in Hebrew, consistently used to describe large bodies of water. This is no little lake or so forth. Forget all that stuff. It was a large body of water, and they passed through on dry land, and the waters were like a wall. The word for wall here in Hebrew has the idea of 
large city walls at least 20 feet high to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Now, I don't know if you would want to be the first one to walk into the sea, but I would still say that's a walk of faith because you hope that God doesn't get distracted. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I was holding up the seawalls for these guys, right? That's not how it works. We all know that. That's a very human illustration. But still, we're human. Do you remember later when the uh, children of Israel are going to go into the promised land to take Jericho and they're going to cross the Jordan? And God says, okay, I'm going to part the Jordan, but I want the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant and I want them to step into the Jordan and when they step in, I'll part the waters. And here's, and you can write down uh, Joshua 3, 13 through 17 if you're taking notes. But let me just summarize. The waters congealed and were held up by the power of God. But God said, I'm not parting the waters until the priest with the ark step in. Ray Vanderlaan did an on-site teaching and he said that the book of Joshua says the waters were at flood stage. And that means that the first step would not be what a lot of us like to do. So how is it 83 degrees in the water? Is this a good enough step of faith for you, God? You see, look at how I believe. No, it would appear that if you were the lead priest carrying the ark, the step would be a step over your head. Either God parts the river or you're going down with the ark. Now that is faith. And I often feel when God asks me to take a step that it is way over my head. And that's what a walk of faith is. And so the children of Israel go in, but you could imagine you might be rushing your family through the waters, wouldn't you? We don't know what's going to happen here. What if you were one of those naysayers at the beginning? You know, aren't there enough graves in Egypt? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You're like, I hope he doesn't just let this portion of the sea come on my head because I was whining, right? And some of you have issues with getting your family moving, right? Sunday morning. Anybody? Let's go. It's time to move. This is a Bible verse. It's time to go forward. Stop blow-drying your hair and all that stuff that you're doing. Let's go. Some of you this morning had these issues. I can feel it in the room. You're like, let's get going. It's time to move. You've prayed enough. <laughs> Whatever, maybe. Anyway. And so off they go into the sea. Wonder what the conversation was like. You know, the movies depicted as everybody's, whoa, cool. You know, lit up uh, whale looking down. Hey, what's going on over here? You know, an aquarium kind of feel. I'm not sure. I think I'd be doing some speed walking because that's about all I got right now. <laughs> Trying to get everything <laughs> to the other side. Will you believe the same God who stopped the waters will keep them suspended? Hebrews 11:29, the great hall of faith says, by faith, they, Israel, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Hebrews eleven twenty nine. I want to take you to two Psalms for your encouragement. Psalm 77. Let's turn there. We'll come back to Exodus and finish it up in a moment. But Psalm 77, uh, a couple of Psalms that celebrate 
what God did here. This is a powerful one, and I would encourage you, if you're looking for a devotion this week, Psalm 77 is amazing. But for our purposes, Psalm 77 down to verse 16. It says, The waters, Psalm 77, 16, saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. Some believe that clouds were present, you know, uh, maybe causing problems for the Egyptians. That's debatable. The skies gave forth a sound, probably sounds of thunder. Thy arrows flashed here and there. The sound of thy thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Thy way was in the sea, and thy paths in the mighty waters. And thy footprints may not be known. Thou didst lead thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And then over to Psalm 136. This is a psalm that celebrates the faithful covenant love of Yahweh. It repeats, your love endures forever or your loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 136, it's kind of like a, something is uh, lauded about God, celebrated about God, and then the congregation says, his love endures forever or his loving kindness is everlasting. Skip down to verse 13. It says, Psalm 136, 13, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder. Let's say it, brethren. His loving kindness is everlasting. He made Israel pass through the midst of it his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, you got to do the last one loud. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. His loving kindness is everlasting. Amen and amen. Back to Exodus and we'll finish it. And so the Egyptian army watches what happens. They've been blocked by this divine cloud. And now, obviously, something changes where they can now pursue. And so the Egyptians took up pursuit 1423, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. Now, first of all, why in the world would the Egyptian army chase them? Didn't it look like sort of a trap? <laughs> What was wrong with these people? But I will tell you this. It is amazing to me that when someone's heart becomes hardened, what they will do to try to fight God. And that's what happened. Their hearts were hard, and they went into the sea, literally, at the morning watch. That's the hours that the day begins to dawn. The Lord looked down the morning watch. That's when Jesus came to the disciples. When they were rowing on the sea, he came to them at the fourth watch of the night and, of course, rescued them. And so God caused their chariot wheels to swerve. If you have an NIV, it says this, they came off. Literally, the wheels were coming off for the Egyptians. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee. Let's get away from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Yeah, uh, duh. <laughs> I mean, how many times does this have to happen until you figure out that their God is strong and you're going to lose? But they realized this in the sea. The chariot wheels began to swerve. They were driving with difficulty. They were confused. If you read Old Testament uh, war accounts, this is often a tactic that God used. He just simply confused the enemy. He can do whatever he wants. 
So there, there was confusion and fear. And the Lord said to Moses, obviously this is a truncated, abridged uh, story here because there's taken time to pass through. They've done it uh, you know, fully now. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Israel has passed through. So that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, just as he had done when it parted, and the sea returned to its normal state, and it happened at daybreak. We'll come back to that. And while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, the Lord, it's the Lord, not Moses, it's not the wind, it's the Lord, he overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And as an old rock and roll song put it, and the walls came tumbling down. <laughs> Can you imagine being one of those Egyptians? I told you, Fred. Ah! And there goes the mightiest army in the world, drowned in the midst of the sea. And some of you may be saying, I really feel for those poor Egyptians. How terrible. Until you realize that when we first studied the book, the Pharaoh was trying to drown Hebrew baby boys in the Nile River. This is divine retribution. You try to drown my people and kill my people, guess what? This is the final blow against you for what you've done to my people. And so he overthrew the most powerful army in the world, and he was glorified. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army. We don't know if he was there. We don't know if he sat back like many generals would do and, or uh, you know, leaders of a country and just said, go get them, boys. We don't know. But the army, the entire army is described as going into the sea after them and not one of them remained. They were all destroyed. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And the enemy was destroyed. Can you imagine being one of the Israelites on the other side of the sea? And you look, the day is breaking. The Lord saved Israel that day 30 from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead washing up on the seashore, which is very typical of Someone dies in water, in an ocean, for example, eventually bodies will wash up to the seashore. This may be why we don't have more artifacts as people have looked for them. I don't know for sure. But I will tell you this, that as the Israelites were on the other side of the miracle, they looked and they saw probably thousands of Egyptian soldiers washing up dead on the seashore. What does that do for your faith when you realize how powerful your God is. He said, I'm going to destroy the enemies of sin and death, and I'm going to bring you to the other side. I will safely bring you home to my heavenly kingdom. And look, we struggle with faith. The last verse of Isaiah says, then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in an horror." abhorrence to all mankind. The final verse of Isaiah seems to indicate that the people of God will look on those who have been judged by God. And it describes corpses as a visible reminder 
that God is holy. And he makes a distinction between his people and the enemy. I will say this, that this is a graphic picture of the day of the Lord. Because in the day of the Lord, the Lord is going to save his people through the difficult trial of the last days. And he's going to pour out, listen to those words, pour out his judgment on an unbelieving world. And so there is a day of the Lord coming as well. But Jesus said of his followers, Father, the ones that you gave me, I lost not one of them. And that's what we are told, is that not one of the Israelites were lost, but the Egyptian army was lost. And so Israel was saved through the waters, through the sea. Not one of the enemy remained, but all of Israel passed over. And the Lord saved his people. He's a God who saves. And when Israel saw, final verse, the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. This is a good kind of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. They literally crossed over from death to life. This is what Jesus said salvation is, by the way. He said, if you believe his word, you believe the, the God who sent him or his father who sent him, when you believe, you pass over, think of the sea, from death to life. You must have a moment where you trust Jesus. And remember that Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like him in, in the future. And the greater Moses is the Messiah who leads his people to salvation. And so Jesus is getting ready to die as the Passover lamb. And he tells his disciples, I'm leaving. And they are torn up. And they say, Lord, where are you going? What do you mean by this? And Jesus said these words. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If there wasn't a heaven, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be. Going, there you may be. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And one of the disciples said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. And no one is crossing over to my father's house except through me. This great Savior makes the way for us and also deals with our enemies for us. This is our mighty God, amen? This is the God of our salvation. Father, thank you for the power of your word, the beauty of your word, the majesty of it. Thank you that you are a God of miracles and the greatest miracle that we can hold on to today is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ defeated our enemies at the cross, defeated death through the resurrection, has gone to prepare a place for his people, is now currently interceding the great go-between, the way of escape when we're tempted, the one who mediates and advocates for his people before the throne. And every time the enemy accuses it's the blood of Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus that 
says innocent, innocent. And Lord, right now, positionally, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're on the other side of the sea. It's already done. It's already paid for. Thank you. But we have a walk to walk. And we were told in 1 Corinthians 10 that we can't be prideful about it. We gotta be careful. We gotta learn the lessons from accounts like this in our Bibles so that we can take the way of faith and trust you. And we're in some demanding days, Lord, no doubt. Days that have kind of pushed a lot of us to the brink. But when our backs are up against the wall, we know you will provide the way. You are the way. You've made the way. Help us not to be afraid. Help us to stand firm. Help us to be still. And when you tell us to move, help us to move. In Jesus' name. And I just want to say to you, just in these final moments, if you're not a Christian, this would be a wonderful time to settle that. You cannot save yourself. These enemies are too big. Our mortality, this world, the enemy, sin and death, the things that so easily entangle us, they're too big for me. But we have a Savior. But you've got to have a moment in your life when you cross over. When you trust in what he has said and what he has done, when you turn from your sin, you turn from the world and you say, I'm going to trust in you and you alone for my salvation. Have you done that? If you haven't done that, you're not a Christian. But he is a prayer away. And he is so faithful to save. But you must call upon him. I know the room is filled with Christians but if you haven't made that decision yet, this would be a wonderful day to start that journey of faith with him at your rear guard and leading the way. Amen?